and welcome to On Liberty. I'm your host today, standing in for our regular host, Salvatore Babonis. Welcome to CIS. Well, today on the program, energy policy, and who better to address the politics and the economics of the energy transition than one of the most distinguished members of the Canberra Press Gallery. Chris Yulman is editor, political editor of Nine News, and he writes a regular column for both the Melbourne Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. G'day, Chris. Welcome back to CIS. G'day, Tom. Good to be here. Now, listen, you wrote recently about an inconvenient truth, but it was not the Al Gore variety. Your inconvenient truth was that the energy transition is expensive. Tell us more. Well, Tom, you only have to go to the Energy Security Board's report, which was brought out just about a week or so ago, and look at what it's saying about the future of the energy market in Australia. And it's all up for the transition. But one of the things that it says on page seven, and I do encourage people to read it, is that uh, what we have to do in the next 28 years to get to our net zero targets is build seven times the generation that we built in the last 24. And that's the equivalent of 50 snowy hydros. Now, two things. On what planet does anyone think that the Australia that they know can deliver that kind of building project over the next 28 years? And B, on what planet does that sound like it's going to be cheap to you? And don't forget with what we're doing at the moment, we'll be building dis dispersed renewable, variable renewable energy like wind and solar. So it's going to be a long way from where it needs to get to get to market. And then connecting it with thousands of kilometres of high transmission lines. So all of those expenses need to be taken into account when we're talking about what the cost of the energy future will be. The enthusiasts for wind and solar would come back to you and say that this energy transition from fossil fuels to renewables, um, and you, uh, you put more renewable energy on the grid, that will over time lead to lower energy prices. And indeed, that's what the government's saying at the moment. And you're right, that is what everyone says. And if you take one measure, then that appears to be true. And everyone talks about the levelised cost of electricity. So at a plant-based level, when the wind is blowing or when the sun is shining, it is now the cheapest force of kind of generation. But you can't just look at it that way because the energy system needs to be in perfect balance at all times. And the most valuable thing in an energy system is to be able to deliver on demand and particularly at times of peak demand. And they tend to be at the end and the beginnings of the day, i.e. when the sun usually has either not come up or has set or is not giving out a lot of rays and sometimes the wind drops. So dispatchable power is important and you also need to connect it. Or if it's variable renewable energy, you have to back it up at times when it's not available. So once you start to add in the cost of the transmission lines that you need to get it to the marketplace, of the storage that's needed, of the backup other supplies, maybe fast peaking gas or something else, to make sure that the energy system stays in balance, that's the true cost of electricity. The levelised cost of electricity tells us almost nothing. And now the International Energy Agency is starting to look at other ways of measuring it, and by the way, the capacity market, the energy security board is looking at, is valuing the ability to dispatch at times of peak demand. And when it does that, it's going to do something called derating. So write that down because you're going to hear a lot more about it. Derating means when Tom Switzer, you come to me and you say, well, Chris, uh, I want to be in your capacity market. There's money in it. So I've got a gas peaking plant. It's 100 megawatts. And I'll say, well, Tom, you get 100 out of 100 because I know that 100 megawatts will be available when I need it. I come along with a coal plant and uh, and I say, look, you know, I'm at this coal plant. And I say, well, Chris, it's old. It might not be there all the time. I'll give you 90, 80 or 90 out of 100. You come to me with a solar plant that doesn't have any backup 
and say, I want to be in this marketplace too, and I'm going to rate you at zero because at the time I need it, the sun will be down yeah. at, in winter in particular. So that, by the way, is going to be a bloodbath, but that puts into perspective the real value of the kind of energy we're talking about. But your critics, the enthusiasts for renewable energy, they'll point to a couple of case studies in Australia and they'll say that South Australia and Victoria, all things considered, are making this transition, relatively speaking, smoothly. Uh, let's look at South Australia first. South Australia. So let's go and look back at what happened in 2016 when I first got interested in this. And three days before the lights went out in South Australia, I did a story saying it was the canary in the coal mine because what they had done is, in fact, South Australia at that time had more renewable energy in its marketplace. But don't forget, it is connected to a larger marketplace, the national electricity market, which runs from Cookdown all the way through to Port Lincoln. So South Australia is part of that. It's an extraordinary massive system and it is interconnected. So there's a line that runs through into, into Victoria that helps to support South Australia. But they had more renewable energy on their marketplace than anywhere else in Australia, pretty much anywhere else in the world, and it was mostly wind. And then they shut down their coal-fired power plant. And then push comes to shove, there's a problem. There's a big storm in South Australia. And that basically the link between Victoria and South Australia is, is cut. At that point in time, there is a, you know, lightning strikes the transmission lines, this ricochets through the grids, and the renewable power sources at this time win shut down and the whole of South Australia goes to black. And by the way, when you get to going to black, the only way you can restart it is with some kind of fossil fuel. And at that stage, it was gas in South Australia. Now, people will say that the settings were wrong on, yeah. on that stage, and they've changed the settings since then. It doesn't take away from the fact that since then, look at what the South Australian government did, not at what it says. The first thing that they did, everyone talks about the big battery. No, what they did was they bought nine diesel fired generators so in order to buttress their grid they made sure that they had fossil fuel there not just any kind of fossil fuel the dirtiest fossil fuel that you could possibly have to make sure that they could stabilize their system mm. uh, they've actually now the, the the energy market operator constantly intervenes in the south australian market because when, even when they've got lots of wind and they get up to 80 you know 90 percent of their electricity generated by wind or more there always has to be something in there to help stabilise it. And at the moment, the South Australian market, that's gas or it's the interconnector with Victoria, which has got brown fine coal, uh, brown coal which it burns mostly there. Yeah. And look, and what happened in Victoria? When Hazelwood shut down, the price of electricity uh, across the national electricity market went up by 85%. So again, now South Australia and Victoria, their marketplaces now are needing more and more in intervention mm. as fossil fuel exits and more ver variable fuel stays in the marketplace. The law of unintended consequences, and we should stress in the case of Adelaide, this is a very cosy bipartisan consensus. Okay, uh, Chris, given everything you've said, if the energy transition is to succeed, and there's a broad consensus that one day there will no longer be fossil fuels. It probably won't be in our lifetimes, Chris, but there will be a transition. But if the energy transition is to succeed, what do you think needs to happen? That we cannot disconnect the generation that we have before we have a replacement for it. And that's what the Energy Security Board is saying. So the development of this capacity market is an admission of failure in the marketplace. It means the system that we've got now, and, and Tom, I don't think people understand, the electricity grid is a modern miracle. And one of the members of your organization, I won't name him, I had breakfast with him this morning, but a well-storied economist pointed me to 
a convention in the United States at the end of the 20th century where all of the engineers of the United States and their organizations got together and they, they voted on what was the greatest engineering achievement mm. of the 20th century. And don't forget, this is where we get flight. We end with rocket ships. We've got <laughs> transport. So a lot of engineering achievements yeah. in the 20th century, it puts paid to every other century before it. And what was their number one? Or what came number one for all the engineers? The electricity grid. Yeah. Because without that, Yep. Nothing else was possible. And Neil Armstrong, he said himself, he gave the speech on this. He's a, he was a, basically an engineer, a white sock-wearing engineer with a pocket protector. But the electricity grid was the number one thing. So it is a miraculous invention. It's a highly complex invention. People don't understand it. In Australia, on the national electricity market, which is that one that goes from Cook down to Port Lincoln, it's two things. It's a physical marketplace and it's a marketplace, a financial marketplace, where the price of energy is settled every five minutes Every half hour, they put out a price for it. And, and, and so that's the way we, we pay for electricity. What the capacity market that the Energy Security Board is trying to do is say, that's not working anymore. That is, that is now so broken. We need to develop an additional marketplace, which will say, in when push comes to shove, we need to know that that energy will be available. Now, ludicrously, the Victorian Energy Minister has said that, that she does not want to include coal or gas in the capacity market. Now think about that. That is currently 70% of our capacity not being included in a capacity market. And nowhere in the world, by the way, are renewables backed up by renewables. So this is actually a physical impossibility. What we are doing at the moment is pressing the pedal to the metal of a nasty car crash. And so the only point I'm making is we do have to make this transition. I don't think it's going to end up being, by the way, that wind and solar become baseload power uh -huh. in Australia or anywhere else. For a very long time, it's going to need the support of other dispatchable things. Okay. That, yeah, and it depends on what that is. And what that is, by the way, will be expensive. Indeed. Now, it sounds like the Victorian Liberals need to talk to um, uh, their colleagues in Germany because they're, they're taking a different position on this matter. And we will deal with Germany very soon. But of course, all of this is a reminder that this energy transition amounts to the most radical economic change that we've experienced on Earth since the Industrial Revolution. So there's always a danger of unintended consequences, as you say. Now, Chris, when you put your proposal or a variation of it to Chris Bowen, past guest here at CIS, how did the energy minister respond? Well, I got a little speech on how the world wasn't the way that he'd like the world to be, that what we said, I had a long-held view on renewable energy. And that's <laughs> that's true. I do have a long-held view on renewable energy. Is that is you were that. a household name at the ABC, Chris. Yeah. So well, it's basically that, that in order, we do need to make the transition. We are making the transition. In fact, people are getting what they want. For years, we've been saying to coal-fired power plants, go away, we don't want you. And guess what? They got the message. They're now not spending any money on maintenance, and so their plants are breaking down. But he said the answer was that we hadn't built enough renewable energy, that we didn't have enough storage. And I agree with him. We don't have any of those things, but that's a world that does not exist at the moment, one he's working towards. My only point is that in the meantime, and this is the point that I made to him and said this is it's not true, that we have to keep the coal-fired generation in the marketplace to the end of its natural life. And don't forget, a lot of them are now disconnecting early and to fix the ones that are broken. Again, the Energy Security Board says it expects that five gigawatts of electricity is going to disconnect within the next eight years. But unfortunately, it believes that 14 gigawatts is going to disconnect because it's now become uneconomic to do so. Because again, in the financial marketplace, what's happening is when 
electricity is available from wind and solar, and that's whenever it's available, it undercuts the price of coal-fired generation and makes it uneconomic to, to run. So, so we're getting what we wish for. We're just getting it too fast. So we just need to hasten slowly. This is not a radical argument, but you, you would you, you go online and read it, you would think that I was the worst kind of climate change denialist. Mm. Let's say we've signed off on that. This is where we're heading. Let's just not destroy the grid on the way out because once it's broken, and I fear that it's broken now, it will be incredibly difficult and expensive to fix it. And the, the fixes that we're going to have to put in place will not be allowed by our legislators. Your qualifications aside, and if Chris Bowen were here, he'd respond by saying that, leaving aside all that, the cold hard reality is that oil and gas companies have been losing shareholder battles to climate activists. Financial institutions divest their managed funds from corporations invested in fossil fuels. I mean, doesn't all this pressure from investors and the capital markets to slash emissions dramatically, doesn't that still suggest that uh, fossil fuels are on real borrow time? I think that it does. But the, the truth of the matter is that it's a lot further off than people are making out. And we've had we've had just had a, a demonstration now, a demonstration, a real world one of what happens to a country that says that one thing about renewable energy and does another. I know we're going to talk a bit more about Germany in the future, but what happened with that country was it was utterly reliant on an external source of power, and that was Russian right. gas. Yeah. And what we what we then did with the sanctions against Russia is we made what is still a valuable resource in the world rare. So what does Russia do? What, what's a big exporter of? It's the world's biggest exporter of gas. Mm. And so the price of gas went through the roof. It's the world's second biggest exporter of coal. It's the third biggest exporter of oil. It turns out that everyone's talking a good game, but then everyone went, went off rushing to find, try and find out where they could get alternative supplies. The price went through the roof. Yeah. At the same time as we're cutting off generation here, why are we surprised that the, the price of, of the fuel sources of coal and gas are now high in the world when we've been narrowing the sources of their supply and cutting off the way in which they can generate into our grid? That's why the price went up, because it's still a valuable good. It's been a striking turnaround in commitments. I mean, Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister, once famously said that what determines polit politics and changing circumstances are events, dear boy, events. And clearly the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been a significant event when it comes to the consequences for energy policy. But if you go back late last year, Chris, and let's put this in a global context, uh, world leaders convened at Glasgow in Scotland and they agreed to phase out coal and the other fossil fuels developed countries by 2050, developing countries by 2060. And yet now uh, officials are grappling with the opposite challenge. Where can they get more fossil fuels? And so you've got nations from the UK to China and the Netherlands, they're scrambling for supplies of coal. Hmm. Chris? And as they scramble for supplies of coal, the price rises. I think there can be no better demonstration as a piece of performance art is the Greens are now in a, in a three-party governing coalition in Germany. They went to the last election on a platform that they would get rid of coal mm -hmm. by 2030, which was actually eight years earlier than had been planned in Germany, which has done more on putting renewable energy onto its grid than any other country on earth. Yeah. Two things out of that. Now it has the most expensive electricity on earth so again tell me how this adds up this is before the russian invasion of ukraine but after the invasion of ukraine when uh, russia now has limited by 60 percent the amount of gas that it's pumping into 
into, into Germany, the Greens minister had to step up and say, we're going to reopen a coal-fired power plant. Why? But the reason we're going to do it is so we can actually store more gas. So on two fronts, reopening coal to store more gas because the inconvenient truth is yeah. their economy can't run without it. No matter what they say about what they have done, then this is the, the underlying premises. Stop listening to what world leaders are saying and watch what they're doing. We just had a meeting of the G7. And let me read, uh, I've got a, a paragraph from Please that. Do. It says, we stress the important role increased deliveries of liquid natural gas can play and acknowledge that investment in this sector is necessary in response to the current crisis. Now, we are not allowing, you were speaking about before, investment in gas here. The European Union at the beginning of the year changed its rules to designate gas and nuclear energy as green for the purposes of investment because they're being mugged by reality. Yes. Tom, they understand the way the world really works as opposed to what they're telling people about the way that the world works. Well, Chris, I'm sure that a lot of members tuning in would agree with this. And it's a reminder that much of the media narrative in this country, with rare exceptions, uh, talks a different language. They talk about the rest of the world, particularly Europe, uh, decarbonizing their economies. And as you say, they're going in a different direction. You said in one of your recent nine newspaper columns, Chris, I like this quote, Europe's dirty little secret is that it parades its virtue while exporting its vice. Well, they do, and we know they parade their virtue because every time we, we listen to a European leader, they lecture Australia on how terrible they are. But let's have a look at what they actually did. How has Europe cut its, its greenhouse gas emissions? Well, it's exported industrial production, mostly to China. And what's happened? Well, world fossil fuel consumption has increased over the course of the last 20 years because consumers in Germany haven't changed their lifestyle at all. They're just importing their carbon emissions mm -hmm. now. But the way that the Paris Agreement is set up is that you only count the emissions inside your own borders. So Germany has exported its carbon to China, hasn't solved the problem for the world, but in the accounting of it, looks like it's doing a great job. So yes, it exports its virtue in telling us how well they're doing. And, and by the way, Tom, this is a really important point. All the conversation that we've had pretty much over the last 20 years and what we're doing now is all about the generation of electricity, which is 80%, sorry, is 18% is of the problem of decarbonisation. We have yet to solve the other 80%, and that's the pillars of industrial production. That's production of steel, cement, plastic, and ammonia. And we use ammonia to feed half the world's population because that's the fertilising base that we use. We have no readily deployable uh, ways of doing those things without using fossil fuel because they, they use it in their chemical processes. Look around you at every single thing you can see, that bookcase behind you, those books, everything, even the food that you eat. And I, I encourage people watching this to get a book by a guy called Vaclav Smil called, called How the World Really Works. Mm -hmm, and stop mm -hmm. listening to people in universities who, who are climate scientists and start looking talking to engineers like him, people who understand how the world works. And as he points out, in a baguette that you might be eating, there are two tablespoons of diesel. If you buy a tomato in Scandinavia that was, was, was made in Spain under the hothouse conditions that they've got there, an enormous amount of fossil fuel is contained in the product that you're eating. So we haven't come up with a way of solving that. We keep hearing about things that are just buried over the horizon like hydrogen. And they're expensive. It's not just Berlin and Brussels that are complete hypocrites on this issue. It's even Boris Johnson's Britain. Chris, you'd remember a Glasgow 
last November, Boris Johnson, as the host, uh, was talking about the death knell for coal power. And yet Britain, as I think you've pointed out in one of your recent columns, is planting the first new coal mine in the UK for decades. And British energy companies have been asked to delay the closure of coal-fired power plants. That's in Boris Johnson's Britain. Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, too, which we're never, ever allowed to use is don't forget that the British at least are using nuclear energy. We keep getting told this, oh, it's too expensive. Well, hang on. How come France, which has got more than 70% of its electricity generation coming from nuclear, has cheaper electricity than Germany and, by the way, helps to support the German marketplace through an interconnector that runs from France into Germany. So if we are going to do this, we do actually need to have that conversation as well about the use of nuclear energy. Unfortunately, in Australia, and I blame the French for this because of the French nuclear testing uh, at the uh, during the last century. 1990s, yeah. Yeah, 200 tests up from 1996 to no, 1966 to 1996. Mm. That's what started the whole anti-nuclear movement in Australia. And this is the argument, which 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 now well, I, I hear most often from the Australian Greens, if you would put it to them. So what energy sources can we use? Well, we've never been allowed to use nuclear. We now aren't mm. allowed to use coal. We aren't allowed to use gas as a transition fuel, which is being allowed in Europe. And by the way, Bob Brown is protesting against a wind farm in northern Tasmania at the moment. And I asked him 10 years ago whether or not he would rule out ever protesting against wind farms because we're going to need so many of them. And he said, of course not. So mm. apparently there is no energy source uh, which those who are on the extremes of this argument would prohibit while asking us to make a massive transition. And frankly, like if we get to the next 80%, once we finish this conversation and start to get to, to the next 80%, we are going to have to radically change our lifestyles if we're actually going to meet these targets. That's what's being demanded. Okay, turning to a question from one of our members, Andy asks, let's say, hopefully not, that the Ukraine war continues for, say, 10 years. Does this mean, this is Andy's question, the extension of the energy crisis for this period and more. Chris Shulman. Absolutely it does because of the nature of what Russia, Russia produces. And don't forget, at, even at the moment, even as we speak, even as the G7 and NATO meet, Europe is sending money to Russia for its gas exports. It started to constrict them, but it hasn't gotten rid of them. So in fact, the Europeans are at once helping to arm the Ukrainians while they're financing the Russian <laughs> war. Again, this is the, the we've got to start getting ahead. Stop listening to what politicians say and start watching what they do. And you'll see everywhere the hypocrisy is writ large. One of the other things, too, is we copped it. I was at, I was at COP26 and it was the, the most amazing giant aircraft. Like imagine being in a giant terminal like in Melbourne or Sydney where it just goes on forever and forever and forever with thousands of people trying to pour through the front end and, and a lot of important people walking fast everywhere. You knew when the leaders were coming because they'd have their security guards with them, but obviously important people from everywhere. And billionaires, there's a trade show that goes on at the same time where every manner of thing is trillions of dollars are being poured into an industry, some of which will work and some of which is clearly snake oil. You know, there is a massive, massive industry in this whole thing and a very small percentage of it will actually find us answers to the questions that are being posed. Okay, let's talk, talking about what, look at what countries do rather than what their leaders say. Let's turn to China because there is a school of thought, 
Chris, that says that China is playing an important role in greening the planet. And they don't just refer to President Xi Jinping's pledge to slash emissions or have net zero emissions by 2060, or his pledge that China's investments uh, in international coal-fired power plants in emerging nations, this is a so-called Belt and Road Initiative, that will soon subside. They say that China leads on clean technology, and that is true. They have been trendsetters uh, on solar and, to a lesser extent, wind. How would you respond to this argument that China is doing more than its fair share to green the planet? Well, it produces 28% of the world's fossil fuel and it, so of the world's carbon emissions and is that growing? If we're going to measure it, let's just measure it by what That's it's the actually in doing. The world. It's the largest in the world. And by the way, it put on more coal-fired generation, built new plants mm. in 2021 than I think the rest of the world combined. So you look at what it's just done and how it's actually generating its energy. It's a huge, and it put on a whole lot of, don't forget, put on a whole lot of sanctions against Australian coal, but it's increased its coal production. And some of that's Australian coal, which is coming through third countries. So again, yes, you're right. It has produced a whole lot of renewable energy, but look at the mass of the country and, the, and, the, and what it has to do and watch what it is doing, not what it is saying. And, and unfortunately, too, some of those solar panels we know that they're producing have been produced with slave labour. So as the rest of the world really, and the United States has recently started to address this, going to keep keep accepting solar panels made in China if they've been produced by Uyghur slave labour. Well, there's a moral reason why we shouldn't, and certainly why we should be producing our own here. But if we produce our own here, they'll be more expensive. And of course, they're very. the Chinese are very reliant on foreign oil gas and coal. And that brings me to the UN Global Climate Fund. Uh, this was uh, agreed to at Copenhagen in 20, 2009, which we both covered at the time, mm. uh, Chris. And um, it was a complete failure to reach a legally binding verifiable deal. But they did agree on an idea of having $100 billion in aid from the OECD countries to the developing countries to help the non-OECD transition from fossil fuels to renewables. Now, of course, um, there has been a big drama in Bonn. There's been some tense climate talks there where the rich nations led by the US and the EU, they've been accused of betraying poorer nations over this very issue. So if so many of, so if, if a large percentage, I think something like 65% of global emissions are coming from the non-OECD, the developing countries led by China and India, how on earth can the rich world help the developing world make that transition to net zero in only a few decades? Well, we have to allow them a, a passageway to both develop and, and to find a way to make their energy sources cleaner. And look, again, these things sound counterintuitive, but some of the coal that we produce in Australia is the best coal in the world and burned in the right kinds of ways is better for the environment than the alternatives that they're using at the moment. So in a transition, it would be better to burn Australian coal in some of these countries than it would be to burn some of the stuff that they've got there. I mean, I talked about Germany. It burns lignite, brown coal. It's the, it's the dirtiest kind of, of coal that you could have. If we sent them Australian mm. coal, at least it would be burning a little brighter and a little cleaner. And uh, I know from talking to people who've developed these plants in, in Japan that, you know, they're, they're a lot cleaner now than they were. Now, they're not perfect. We're transitioning out of them. We're not building any here, that's for sure. In fact, we could lower our carbon emissions by building some better coal-fired power plants, but that's not allowed. Then there's a transition using gas, of course, but unfortunately, gas is extremely expensive now, and, mm. and it's unlikely to lower its, its costs. But what we have to do is find a sensible way for these people to be able to develop. But again, 
you know, when you start talking about that, as more and more people enter more and more developed economies, the, the fact of the matter is it's more than likely that the, the carbon footprint of the planet will increase. So it's a diabolical problem, but we shouldn't try and be inflicting our virtue on other countries. If, if essentially what we've done is gotten rich, exported our our carbon emissions, imported them back in, and then demand that the rest of the world doesn't actually use fossil fuel to get rich. Well, that is a bit rich. And the other thing on that climate fund, I just worry with some of this stuff. It, it boils down into money politics. Do you honestly believe, and again, look at the way the world works, that someone's going to take that money to some of these countries and spend it on emissions reductions? Yeah. You know, I, I really worry. Well, the other point to bear in mind too is why would the United States and Australia, among other countries, uh, basically try to help China, a strategic competitor, become more energy independent. Oh, that's right, because, of course, China now still designates itself as a developing country for the purposes of all these things, which is why it's got to get out of jail free card. I mean, let's face it, the richest country on the earth still claims that it's developing and gets a whole lot of benefits. You know, again, we should end all the perverse incentives that have been set up in mm. the system and and judge countries by their contribution to trying to help. Finally, Chris, and try to be very quick here, given everything we've discussed about the slow international progress to make this energy transition, particularly given the crisis in Ukraine, what does this say about Australia? Because the overwhelming media consensus, not just the ABC and The Guardian, but it's an overwhelming narrative, is that Australia, particularly under the last 10 years, has been a climate laggard. Is that really the case? Uh, look, I think that, you know, things could have been done better. There's not a shadow of doubt that, particularly in the electricity centre, but we're nowhere near as bad as we say we are. And if you were to ask a lot of people, well, how big a carbon, carbon footprint do you reckon Australia's got, given the, the press that we've got? I reckon a lot of people would say, oh, 10%, 15%. It's 1.2. We could switch Australia off tomorrow or move to New Zealand. And within a year, uh, China would have overtaken the, the exactly. fossil fuel yeah. that we were putting out. So, yeah. Well, Chris, uh, this is a reminder of something that the distinguished uh, energy expert, Daniel Jurgen, uh, he says that in the 2020s, quote, government budgets promoting the energy transition will be constrained by the heavy debt burden accumulated in the wake of the COVID crisis. We haven't even talked about that. Mm. Chris, always great to have you at the Centre for Independent Studies. Thanks so much, mate. Great to chat, mate. Thanks for having me. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. On Liberty will resume in a fortnight's time. I'm your host, Tom Switzer, standing in for Salvatore Barbones. Hope to see you again.